Check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the B2B Content Show. I'm Jeremy Shear. The show is brought to you by Conversa, a digital content agency that helps you create a month's worth of content in just 60 minutes. So buyer personas are pretty much a staple of any B2B marketing playbook, right? And for obvious reasons, they if you're a marketer, they give you kind of like a target to aim at and provide insight and guidelines for how to engage prospects, right? And convert them into customers. So, but the problem though, is that buyer personas are based uh, on information about, well, buyers, right? That's the whole point. The thing is though, at any given moment, as we know, only around 5% of your total market are actually in the buying mode, which means that a whopping 95%, the buyer's persona typically don't take into account that 95%. But would it not make sense to also create personas for that large segment of your market that's just kind of lurking around or they're, they're okay with what they're doing right now, right? They, they don't, they're, they're not trying to buy anything. So that insight led my guest today, Matthew Lewisatter, to, to write and publish a book on the topic. The book is called Bystander Personas, How to Gain Breakthrough Insights into Out-of-Market B2B Audiences, Create Massive Demand for Your Brand, and Win Where Others Aren't Competing. And Matthew is also founder and CEO of Brighttail, which is a B2B demand marketing agency. So Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. I'm thrilled to be on the show with you today. So now a buyer persona gives marketers information, as I was just saying, gives marketers information about what motivates prospects to buy, right? What sort of insight does a bystander persona provide? And I guess maybe we could just start with like, what is a bystander persona in your understanding? Yeah, yeah, great question, Jeremy. So, you know, fundamentally in, in it, the, like TLDR, bystander persona tells you why people aren't buying. Obviously, there's, there's more to it than that. You know, bystander persona or buyer personas are built based on interviews with people who are actually buying. We don't, as marketers, we really lack in, insights into that 95% of people who aren't buying. And so a bystander persona follows actually a lot of the same process as a buyer persona with some important differences, which I'll talk about later. But we're basically looking to understand why these out-of-market audiences are content with their current status quo. You know, what do they perceive as the real cost of change? You know, the cost of change is, is going to be typically a lot more than the purchase price of your software or solution. It could be implementation costs. It could be, you know, the action costs and energy costs associated with securing stakeholder buy-in and leading an implementation. Could be opportunity costs as well. So what do they perceive as the real cost of change? And this is really critical for us to understand as marketers because, you know, the research shows us that buyers are not bystanders and out-of-market audiences are not going to be motivated to change until they understand that the cost of delay it outweighs the cost of change. So we want to understand what that cost of change is to them. And then we're going to look at their success factors, their, you know, how do they 
you know, how are they bonus? What are their KPIs and OKRs, et cetera? This is actually similar to buyer personas, except instead of asking buyers, we're talking to people who aren't buying. And a lot of times we're going to discover that they have a different set of success factors, and that's precisely why they're not buying, right? And then we're going to look at their pains and priorities. They're not looking to solve our problem right now because they're focused on other problems which they perceive as more urgent and valuable. So we want to understand what we're up against in terms of like the problem set that they're trying to solve. And then lastly, their sources of influence. Um, you know, with buyer personas, buyer personas really give us great insights into the channels that our buyers use, who they who they consult for information, things like that. Bystanders, they haven't begun their buying process yet. So they're not in Google, for instance, searching for your searching for your solution. They don't know they have a problem yet. So how are we going to find them? A great way to, to begin that process is by talking to them and asking them, you know, what do they, where do they go for information? You know, what channels are they using? Who are the, what influencers are they following and paying attention to? So these can create some, some new avenues when we look to create demand amongst these bystanders. Okay, and we're going to talk in a minute about how you create demand amongst bystanders. Uh, yes. I, I want to note also that the word bystanders, you're using it, you're spelling it B-U-Y stander, right? So it's Correct. kind of like, it's implying that these are like potential buyers, right? They're not buying right now, but they're kind of standing by and it's your job as a marketer to turn them, get them into that buying mode is kind of the point, right? Exactly, exactly. As, as marketers, we're that, that catalyst for that change. And uh, yeah, I created the term bystanders because right now the way that as B2B marketers, we talk about these audiences as we talk about in-market buyers and out-of-market buyers. But I think that use of the word buyer is a misnomer for these out-of-market people because they may never buy. They're, you know, they may not respond to the trigger events that others do in the same way. They may choose a different category altogether in terms of finding a solution, uh, or they may wait until, you know, the category innovates past your solution and a better fit for their needs emerges. So there's a lot of reasons why they might not become buyers. And so it's important for us not to just look at them through that default lens of being buyers. Yeah. Okay. So can you give us an example of what a bystander persona might look like and maybe even draw from, you know, real life, like a persona that you've created? Sure. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times when we're doing when we're doing these interviews and um, research, you know, we discover these kind of like hidden inertial force, forces within organizations. Uh, and so we were working with this really innovative startup that was creating this liquid cooling technology for data centers, basically replacing air cooled systems uh, with new systems that were a whole lot more efficient. And objectively speaking, they had the best technology on the market. And so they, you know, they were enabling their customers to increase their compute densities by 10x, cut their costs in half and their power consumption in half, 
and meet these new environmental and sustainability regulations, ESG requirements, uh, which is on every CEO's agenda right now in the Fortune 500. So they had this great technology. They had all these endorsements from chip manufacturers, server manufacturers, et cetera. They were talking and engaged with, you know, a lot of the companies in the Fortune 50, but what they were finding was that deals were breaking down somewhere between the C-suite that was really excited about this and the data center operators uh, and operations leaders who would be responsible for implementing it. And so they wanted to understand why. Why were these deals getting derailed? And so we ran through this process interviewing these data center operations leaders. And what emerged was really a, a critical insight. And that's that these operations leaders, they're not, they're not focused and prioritizing innovation and sustainability and even energy efficiency. What their bonuses are based on and their KPIs is uptime. So, you know, our client was trying to introduce this revolutionary technology and it was scaring the pants off of them. You know, it could cause a liquid could leak into a server, shut things down, and that impacts them professionally, right? And so with this key insight that we surfaced through the bystander process, we were then able to reposition the technology, understand it actually enabled us to identify that there is this unheralded benefit with our client's technology is, was that, you know, it has a minimal impact on operations. It literally gave these operations leaders a bolt-on solution that they could snap onto one blade. And if that worked, they could expand it to a rack, to a cert, to a row, to the whole thing. So it gave them a easy solution that they could start deploying, evaluating, and was very low risk for them while also delivering all of these amazing benefits. So for that audience, we really repositioned the technology focusing on the minimal risk to operations, um, renaming the product to kind of reinforce that positioning. And it ended up unblocking a number of deals that were in the pipeline and enabled the client to secure its biggest win. And so that's that's the type of thing that talking to people who aren't buying and who are resisting change, who are you know currently stuck on the status quo, that's what a bystander persona and doing these interviews and discovery can can help us find out and then use to guide our strategies. That's really interesting. In that instance, in that example, these data center like operations people, were they the ones who actually were making the decisions or were they holding up the deal because the C-suite was like, we want this. And they're like, eh, no, we here are all the reasons why we shouldn't do it. But also, and, and because of that, the C-suite's like, oh, OK, we, we won't do it. Like who had the decision making yeah. power in that instance? So the C-suite, they were the financial decision makers, but yeah. the data center operations leaders, they were the gatekeepers in that process. They had, they okay. had the ability to say, to say no, or we need to evaluate other solutions. And that's what was happening is they kept on saying, you know, this doesn't, we don't like the idea of liquid on our servers. Why don't we go try this other air cooling technology yeah. and see what we can squeeze out with that? Um, and so that was the kind of resistance that our client was encountering within those accounts. Okay, that's really interesting. 
because it's very subtle, right? It's like in this instance, the the technically the buyer, the people who will make the decision whether to spend or not, were into the solution. But it was these other the the gatekeepers, as you say, the end user really, who yeah. was weighing in, and that's just, and that was kind of an invisible force, you might say, until you guys stepped in and uncovered it. And right, then, exactly. so it's like not just a buyer; it's like a group of people who are making a decision, as is often the case, right? It, like at a, at a larger company, for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that it, so it might even not technically be the person holding the purse strings, but someone advising them. And if you don't know who those people are and, and what's motivating them or not motivating them, then that can that can hold it up. Yes, yes, exactly. A lot of times with bystander personas, we tend to focus a little more on the executive decision makers because they're usually the ones who are initiating the search for a new solution, deciding to prioritize a problem. And so they initiate that search. They'll hand it off to the, the technical buyer who will conduct the research. And we, so we like to, uh, we like to start with executive decision makers often to figure out what's stopping them from initiating that search. But there are certainly other roles, like in this instance, that it can be extremely important to do a persona study on and, and gain some additional insights into why the status quo has such staying power for them. Okay. So let's talk a little more broadly now about how you can use a bystander persona to create demand. You know, what is that? You just gave us one example of that, but I want to talk, I guess I want to maybe play devil's advocate for a second. Mm. Sure. And so I think there's sort of a line of thought saying that you can't, like, what does it mean to create demand? You know, either these buying decisions are so complex, either people are ready to buy or they're not. You know, mm. and, and the all nearly all the power rests in the hands of the buyer. They're gonna before they talk to you, right? As we all know, they're gonna go, you know, eighty, eighty-five percent down their journey, you know, so to mm. speak. And yeah. And only then when they're kind of ready to buy, do they wanna, you know, get get you in the mix, the seller and get all, you know, ha- have like a sales presentation or whatever. Yeah. How can you so I think there might be some skepticism. Like, can you really take someone who's who's not in buying mode and get them into, can you get them there? Like, does, you know, can you yeah. change their mind? Can you create demand? You know, so like, mm-hmm. I, I think some people mm-hmm. would say, well, no, not really. You can't create demand. But what's your, what would be your response to that? Because it seems like you're saying, actually, you sort of can. Absolutely. Uh, Jeremy, I think that that is, it's a really great point. And I think it's, it's a myth that we encounter in B2B marketing, this idea that you can't create demand. And the first thing that I would do is I would point people to Salesforce, Drift, HubSpot, category creators, any of these brands that have created a category and then become market leaders, as is often the case, right? What did they have to do? They had to create demand where none existed. No one was looking for a cloud CRM. In fact, at that time, people thought that data should be kept on your own premises and servers, and it's certainly risky to stick it in a public cloud, right? So no one was looking for a cloud CRM. No one was looking for conversational marketing or inbound marketing CRM, right? And so I think that you can look at the category creators and, you know, some of them have been massively successful to reinforce this idea that you absolutely can create demand. 
And the key, but the key to doing that is going to be insight. And, you know, I think your original question was, how do you create demand? You know, an important element there is the story that you tell. And if you look at these category creators, and we, we often take inspiration from them when it comes to demand creation because they applied some of the the greatest strategies and these same strategies can be applied to more mature categories as well actually and so you know i I think what we learn from from these category creators is the power of storytelling Uh, andy raskin who uh, you know i i absolutely love his thinking around strategic narratives he says that you know Nothing is a problem until a buyer has a story in their head that something is getting in the way of somewhere they want to be going. And so as demand creators, that's that's our challenge and our opportunity is to tell a new story and to get get you know, bystanders to see their world through this lens of a story that there's somewhere that they want to go, that they actually need to go, but there's something getting in the way. And that thing getting in their way is the status quo. And so the bystander personas really help us draw out the contours of what the status quo looks like, what's holding them to it, you know, the organizational forces, et cetera, as well as the perceived costs of change. And then we get to build a more compelling narrative about the cost of delay and why that trumps the, the perceived cost of change. And so that's that's one of the ways that bystander personas can be applied within demand creation is by using it to tell a better story. We call it a why change now story. Others, Randy or Andy calls it a strategic narrative. Doug Kessler over at Velocity Partners calls it a galvanizing story, but it's it's basically the same thing. It's a story that creates a burning platform that your your bystanders need to jump off of in order to save themselves. And so that's hmm. that's one method. Okay, interesting. So so maybe another way of putting it, or just to make sure that I'm understanding that the the reason people stick with the status quo is because well i guess a few things they might not be aware that there's a better way out there even if they're vaguely aware that there are some problems with what they're doing now like theoretically it could be better but you know who but what what else is even out there and then even if there is are other things you're like well that's risky to change mm-hmm. things now could be better but they could be worse too <laughs> and and so in order to in order to kind of shift that narrative, you have to, through storytelling, as you're saying, make it clear that the risk of not changing is greater than the risk of changing, essentially. Precisely, precisely. And this this is backed up by behavioral science and research. You know, Dan, Daniel Kahneman's work on loss aversion, you know, basically finds that people are twice as motivated by the risk of losing something and the thought of the pain of losing than they are by the potential of gain. And I think this is this is a, a point and an insight that marketers should pay attention to because a lot of times marketers want to create really happy, positive perceptions of their brand and they're afraid of being of, of creating any 
any sort of friction or negative feelings within the market. And so we really emphasize benefits in our campaigns. But if we haven't convinced someone that they need to change and that what they're doing now is risky, then there's not going to be that urgency to explore our solution. And they may look into it, but they may not actually have that that appetite for taking on the risk that change requires. So how do, what did Salesforce do? Like you said, you know, nobody was begging for a cloud solution. And in fact, it probably seemed very weird and risky to put our yeah. data out in something called the cloud. Like what, not, what, you know, what's that? What the hell? It wasn't that long ago that that was not a thing that everybody knew. So how, how did Salesforce tell that story? Like what was their, you know, how did they convince people that it was risky not to change? Yeah. So Salesforce used a lot of guerrilla marketing tactics. They had this, this campaign, end of software, and it, they had a campaign slogan, software sucks. And, you know, it was basically software with this big red X through it. And that became their platform. You know, they were going after the pains of on-premise software. And so they did PR around it. They did publicity stunts like, you know, going to a Siebel users conference and hiring mock protesters to walk outside the conference holding signs and chanting things. Um, You know, like, you know, software sucks, software I forget the exact chance, but you know they they basically did these media stu- stunts and then invited invited all the media to see them. They did things like they had a fight an ad with a fighter jet shooting down a biplane, the biplane being software and the fighter jet being Salesforce. Like very very bold challenger tactics that instantly got them a ton of publicity. And, you know, with their launch event and the tactics that surrounded it, they were able to secure a thousand, a thousand new customers within their first couple of weeks. They went from, you know, really zero to hero right away. And it was really critical that they did so because that was at the time of the dot-com bust. So they needed to be successful. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. So, I mean, it sounds like they, their technique, and I guess this is pretty common. They had like a villain, you know, software was sort of the the enemy that they had to destroy, like literally in that one commercial with a fighter jet, you know? And Mm -hmm. yeah, that sounds like it to really kind of personify the problem and just call it software and then, you know, make that the thing. And then if you're, if you do it the right way, I guess, if you're consuming that content, you, it might bring home to you like, oh, well, yeah, that's that's us. We do use software. And hmm, maybe they're making kind of a good point there about it and the drawbacks to it and so on. And no, oh, interesting. I mean, obviously, not every company has the resources to do stuff like that, right? Stage, mm-hmm. you know, big like kind of spectacles for the media and do high-end commercials and stuff like that. But I suppose a company at any size could do something on a smaller scale that's similar to that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, Jeremy, you said it, you said it perfectly when you said they, they created a villain. And that's something that we see brands do and category 
creators do a lot of times very effectively. So it doesn't always have to be a competitor, you know, for Slack, uh, you know, Slack corporate messaging, instant messaging app. They didn't compete against other messaging apps. They competed against email and meetings. And for them, those were the villains within within the category and representative of the status quo that they were helping their audiences overcome. Uh, for Drift and conversational marketing, they didn't compete against other chatbots. They competed against lead gen forms and introduced this idea that in this instant messaging world, no one, no one wants to wait for your nurturing workflow or your SDR to follow up with me via email. I want answers quickly, instantly. And so I need a marketing chatbot for that. And so, yes, I, Jeremy, I love your insight around, you know, finding, finding your villain. That's something that that we look to do when we're trying to disrupt the status quo there. Yeah, I mean, that's classic storytelling, right? There's an, a protagonist and an antagonist. And mm -hmm. the, the story revolves around their, their battle for supremacy, really. Yeah. And, you know, Seth Godin says it's these days, it's not the, the products you sell, it's the stories you tell. Yeah. Which I think, you know, for our audience of content marketers, you know, it probably really resonates with them. Yeah. So your book, uh, it, it came out just recently, right? It was published just a few weeks ago? Yeah, just a couple of weeks ago. Very cool. Well, congrats on publishing the book. It's available, of course, on Amazon and I suppose anywhere you can buy books online. I, right now, it's just exclusively through Amazon. Oh, okay. Just through Amazon. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we're going to put a link, of course, directly to the Amazon page in our show notes, and we'll put a link to information about you and Brighttail. Is there any other way that people can connect with you if they you know, want to reach out and continue this discussion? Sure. Uh, hit me up on LinkedIn. Let's, let's initiate a chat there, and you know, then we can hop on a Zoom or whatever. But you know, I love... Love talking about bystander personas, demand creation, B2B marketing in general. Uh, so reach out. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Matthew. This is really a cool discussion. I'm glad you were able to come on the show. show. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jeremy, for having me. I, I loved having this discussion with you today. Um, thanks for sharing your insights. Uh, one of the things I love about doing these, these interviews is I always get so much out of them. And so I appreciate you for, for sharing your insights as well. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks again. Cheers. That'll do it for this episode of the B2B Content Show. You can find the podcast anywhere you get podcasts. And as long as you're there, you might as well give us five stars and leave a comment about how much you love the show. The podcast is brought to you by Conversa. We are a digital content agency that helps you create a month's worth of really kick-ass content in just 60 minutes. Just 60 minutes. How is that possible? Well, check out our website to find out. That's Conversa with two N's, C-O-N-N-Versa.com. So thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate your support, and we'll see you next time.